Good morning. Uh, will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? Uh, this morning's scripture uh, comes from Luke chapter 4, verse 14 and 15. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding countries, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Power, let's go. Good morning, everyone. Uh, you may be seated. Uh, just to set the record straight, the only person that can call me Big Daddy is my wife, okay? So good job, Christopher. J- just kidding, Morgan. Uh, you may continue to call me Big Daddy, Christopher. I love it. We're all family here, right? Uh, well, if you're joining in online and you miss the transition, this is an awkward intro. Uh, but that's okay, because we're all family here. Uh, I just got a note that says, ill, so thank you, Gwen. Message received. Uh, yes, they, they send me messages like, come on, wrap it up. And I'm like, we're getting there. The Spirit hasn't given me, like, the land it, so we're just going to keep going. Uh, in, in, in light of celebration, man, yeah, uh, happy Father's Day to all the awesome dads in the room, future dads, spiritual dads, great-granddads, people who played f- uh, father figure roles. Thank you for stepping up and stepping in uh, to reflect the Father heart of God and, and play a critical role in shepherding and uh, discipling uh, your children. Uh, shout out to God the Father, uh, who has been officially landing the third Sunday of every June since 1966. Let's go. That's when the first Father's Day holiday was officially set in. Uh, now you know. Uh, in the spirit of celebration, I also want to take a moment uh, to honor Juneteenth, uh, also known as Freedom Day. It is the oldest national celebration of the end of slavery in the United States. And in many ways, it is our second Independence Day. Uh, uh, for those of you who, who don't know, on, on June 19th, 1865, Uh, Major General Gordon Granger came riding into Galveston, Texas, right down the street, bringing good news. What was this good news? That slavery had, uh, that the war had officially ended and that all slaves were free. Now, this news came two and a half years after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. News had finally arrived that all slaves were free. And the first celebration of Juneteenth uh, was called Jubilee Day the following year here in Texas. And it was in reference to Leviticus chapter 25. Uh, Jubilee was this Old Testament festival that was observed every 50 years to honor the Lord by setting free all the prisoners, uh, by setting free all of the captives. All the slaves were released All debts were forgiven and all property was returned to its original owner. And the name Jubilee came from this exuberant feeling of joy that comes from such a life-changing event. Imagine all your debts being forgiven, being released and set free, all of your goods being returned to you. Now, Juneteenth not only celebrates the freedom of African Americans from slavery, but it also recognizes the struggle. Historically, and in this very moment, uh, the struggle to achieve true freedom and justice for all. So we are reminded this morning as we celebrate that God cares for the oppressed, uh, that God cares for the hurting, and that God cares for the abused, and that in Christ, God has given us the great deliverer, whose kingdom every single day, every single second, is breaking more and more into our kingdom and working out the freedom that he has purchased and died to get inside of us. We are reminded this morning that when good news arrives, 
And that when good news is received, it changes things. The message of freedom proclaimed on June 19th, 1865 is not advice on how to live. It is an announcement of good news. Freedom has arrived. And church, the gospel is good news. The gospel is not good advice on how to live. The gospel is an announcement of a life that's available to all those who find life in Christ Jesus uh, because the enemy of sin has been defeated. And we've been discussing this for the the past eight weeks, uh, that in Galatians, Paul characterizes this life as freedom. And for Paul, freedom meant life in the spirit. Now, if you caught the bumper video, we're kicking off a brand new series called Spirit Lead Me. Uh, In our last series, if you were following along, uh, we talked about the Holy Spirit for eight weeks straight. And and, and you might be asking yourself, why on earth are we doing another series uh, on the Holy Spirit? We just talked about the Holy Spirit for eight weeks. And if you feel concerned and curious, I'm glad you asked. Uh, You see, when Paul describes the work of the Holy Spirit, hear me, more often than not, he's describing what the Holy Spirit does in a person. Say that word, in the Holy Spirit working in a person. The the Spirit seals our identity, as we talked about. Uh, Through the book of Galatians, the Spirit sets us free. The Spirit helps us bear fruit. Paul describes the work of the Holy Spirit in a person. What does the Holy Spirit do inside of a person? But there was one author in Scripture who more than any other author in the New Testament describes what the Holy Spirit does through a person. Say that word, through through a person. And this author was a first century doctor and follower of Jesus named Luke. And to give you a little bit of context, Matthew, Mark, and John, early followers of Jesus, when they describe the work of the Holy Spirit, they each probably reference the Holy Spirit about 20 or 30 times. Luke alone does it 136 times. Luke had a lot to say, not only about what the Holy Spirit does in a person, but what the Holy Spirit does through a person, what the Holy Spirit does through a follower of Jesus. No other New Testament author talks as much about the Holy Spirit as Luke does. And what Luke does and what we're going to unpack over the next few weeks is incredibly significant because no other author in the scriptures connects the work of the Holy Spirit to prayer as much as Luke does. So in many ways, this is a uh, a series on spirit-empowered living, but also how that life is realized through prayer. Uh, So over the next few weeks, we're going to be visiting different moments in the spirit-led life of Jesus and see how that life is still made available for us today. And to to kick it off, we're going to look at Luke 14 through 15 one more time. It says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Uh, To unpack uh, the power of this moment, we're going to visit two scenes if you're taking notes. The first scene is the waters. And the second scene is the synagogue. The waters and the synagogue. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name. And uh, we're just so thankful that this this morning just carries so many uh, important themes. You are our Father. Uh, You've given us freedom in Christ, and you're empowering us to uh, proclaim freedom and invite others to uh, live in that freedom that you've made available and to display your wonderful Father heart to the world around us. 
Uh, I pray that as, this, as we look at this word, that you would prepare our heart uh, to receive this word, that it would uh, take root and yield an abundant harvest in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, the waters and the synagogue. Scene one, the waters. Uh, if you have your Bible open, turn it over. Uh, one chapter uh, uh, previous to Luke chapter 3, verse 21 through 22. Uh, if this is your first time visiting or if you don't have a Bible in your hand, uh, we want to put a Bible in your hand. So if you want to shoot up your hand super quickly, uh, we can put a Bible in your hand. And that is uh, yours to keep right over here. And uh, you can put your name in that and take it home. Uh, that is our gift to you. Uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 21 through 22. It says this, now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son. With you, I am well pleased. Now this scene is described by three other eyewitnesses, three other followers of Jesus who experienced this moment alongside Luke. Their names are Matthew, Mark, and John. And they each describe this scene in a few different ways, but they each convey the same general meaning. Uh, Let's look at the way uh, Matthew describes it. You can look at the screen with me. In his gospel account in chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Sounds pretty good, right? Let's look at the way Mark describes it in his book, chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So a little bit more aggressive. The heavens didn't open. They were, they were torn open. And the, the spirit came and fell upon Jesus. Now, this is my favorite description of this moment. Let's look at John chapter 1, verse 32. And John bore witness. Yeah, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. Who's asking? You know, just super quick and to the point. He's like, yeah, it happened. Let's move on. Uh, Each one of them describing in one way or another this historical event that Luke is writing about. But when Matthew, Mark, and John, these followers of Jesus, describe this historic moment in the life of Jesus, if you notice, they emphasize when Jesus emerges from the water. Jesus comes out of the water and the spirit descends upon him. But Luke subtly emphasizes a major detail that Matthew, Mark, and John, for whatever reason, leave out. Let's read Luke 3, 21 through 22 again, and let's see if you can pick it up. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Did you see it? An important detail that Luke includes that Matthew, Mark, Luke, that Matthew, Mark, and John leave out was this. Jesus was praying. Luke describes the heavens opening uh, during Jesus' prayer rather than as he was coming out of the water in comparison to Matthew and Mark. And this is important because this is what David Crump says in his book, Jesus the Intercessor. Prayer opens up a doorway between earth and heaven. Now, why does this matter? 
upon closer examination of the book of Luke and Acts we'll, that we'll see in, in these upcoming weeks, for Luke, when he is describing and witnessing the life of Jesus and the early church, the work of the Spirit through the life of a believer and the work of prayer are inseparable. Uh, Luke almost describes them as one and the same thing. Uh, uh, one coin, and on one side, there's the work of the Spirit, and on the other side, there's prayer. For Luke, when he describes the work of the Spirit in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, it's always either preceding or following the work of prayer in the life of a believer. In other words, prayer precedes receiving the Spirit for empowerment. Here's how Acts chapter 4.31 says it. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God in boldness. Now, this is amazing because Luke presents Jesus' ministry not with power and not with prestige, but in prayer and humility. How does Jesus begin his ministry? Not by overturning tables and raising the dead, but by humbling himself to be baptized, to set an example for us, and in prayer, communing with the Father. And in the crucial moments of Jesus's life, we will see Luke connect the work of the Spirit to the work of prayer in Jesus's life. In other words, there is a relationship between prayer and a Spirit-led life that cannot be overlooked. Let me say that again. There is a connection, a relationship between prayer and a spirit-led life that cannot be overlooked. There is a divine connection between worshiping the Father, being on mission with the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit that is realized in prayer. Uh, In other words, the degree to which we are prayerful will be the degree to which we will see the Spirit at work through us. The degree to which we are prayerful will be the degree to which we see the Spirit at work through us. And just in case you had a problem with what I just said, notice I said through us, not in us. Here's the good news. The Spirit of God is already at work in you. The Spirit of God, whether you realize it or not, and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, is, 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 is progressively moving you closer and closer to King Jesus as the Spirit is sanctifying you and reaffirming you and assuring you of your calling and salvation. But the Spirit of God comes through us when we commune with him in prayer and he empowers us to be on mission with him. The Spirit of God is already at work in us if you're a follower of Jesus, driving the work of becoming more and more like Jesus for God's glory and for our own sake as we grow as followers of Jesus. But the Spirit of God works through us for God's glory and for others. Why does the Spirit of God work through us? So that God may be glorified and that we may be a witness to others, uh, there's, uh, that, that others may experience the redemption and grace and love and joy and freedom that is found in Christ through us, through us for the purpose of mission. And that's what, uh, uh, something that Luke is going to show us over and over and over again, that the Spirit would fall on Jesus 
and work through him for the sake of mission. Not for the sake of exalting himself and having momentary victory over sin so that he can go be isolated and do his own thing. That is not the role of the spirit in the life of a believer. And the role of the spirit in the life of a believer is not to exalt yourself and and say, wow, look how holy ghosty I can get and how awesome my ministry is. And and let's set up a cart. And if you need a healing, uh, 25 cents per healing, come on over. Uh, the, The Holy Spirit is not to be abused in that sense. And we neglect the work of the Holy Spirit in our life because of the historic misuse and abuse of the Spirit. And for Jesus, the Spirit was endowed upon him for the sake of others. The Holy Spirit works in us for our own sake and through us for the sake of others. And prayer connects us to the empowering presence of God who enables us to resist the internal desires of the flesh and live externally on mission with Jesus for others. But what does this look like? And how does this play out in the day-to-day life? Let's visit our second scene, the synagogue. Uh, Turn with me one chapter over to Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through 21, the synagogue. And when Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, uh, and, a, uh, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, a little bit of context. Nazareth was a very poor community. Uh, with less than 400 people. And, and synagogues were these like really local places of worship uh, w- w- where Jewish communities would gather to read the scriptures, to practice community and grow uh, in, in the word. Now, really poor communities like Nazareth uh, weren't afforded the luxury of, of having all of the scrolls. Uh, it's speculated that a small synagogue like Nazareth would only have a handful of the scrolls, a handful of the Old Testament scriptures. We know for a fact that they had Isaiah, because Jesus gets these two cylinders, um, uh, unrolls them, and he begins to read. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, David Garland points this out. Finding a specific text in a scroll without chapter and verse divisions is difficult. The chapters and verse divisions were added much, much later. So it suggests this, that Jesus was so familiar with the scriptures, he knew where to turn. In verse 18, he turns to Isaiah 61 and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now the phrase anointed one is where we get the title Messiah. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is that he's making the claim to be the Messiah. Now this is old news for us because we're like, yeah, Jesus Messiah, Jesus Savior. But this was shocking and scandalous in this very moment. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set all those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And like a boss, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them as he took his seat, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. No mic drop. It's just life drop. Like, whoa. Uh, 
if, uh, you know, this would have been trending on Twitter. Everybody would have been coming over like, well, who are you? Such a beautiful, crazy moment. We read that and we think to ourselves, oh yeah, we know this. But in the moment, with such messianic hope and high expectation, Jesus begins to reveal himself as the anointed one, the very son of God who would uh, reverse the effects of sin, usher and break in his kingdom and restore the world the way it was intended to function in the beginning. Could this be the guy? And Luke informs us that in chapter one, Jesus is conceived by the spirit. In chapter three, he's anointed by the spirit at his baptism. In chapter four, he is led by the spirit to face off the devil in the wilderness And now Jesus is empowered, anointed by the Spirit to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. To set the captives free. To give sight to the blind. The physically blind, he will heal. We see him do that over and over again. But he also works this subtle miracle that we neglect. He opens the eyes of the spiritual blind. He opens their eyes to see who God is and, and, and opens their eyes to a new reality, an eternal perspective, a relationship with God. He liberates the oppressed. And this right here, he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this would have been alluding to the very day that we're celebrating today, Jubilee Day. The themes of Jubilee that we mentioned earlier, uh, that there is a release of prisoners. Debts are forgiven Enemies are released. The books are wiped clean. And Jesus is saying that he is the fulfillment of Jubilee. That that, 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 this is the day of salvation. That forgiveness of debt and sin has arrived. That freedom and healing and hope is available to all those who place their faith in Jesus. And this is the way Luke would describe it in Acts 10 uh, verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Why? How? God was with him. Now, why does all of this matter? And what do these two scenes and these two movements have to do with the spirit-led life that we're trying to pursue in this day and age? And and how does it speak to the lives that that we're navigating right now as as we're practicing raising kids or going to work or just trying to get through school and the everyday stuff of life? What does this mean for us today. David Garland says this, for Jesus, the Spirit comes to empower him for his ministry. In this sense, he is no different from the disciples in Acts and serves as the model for them. Prayer and the Holy Spirit unleash the power of God in their lives to engage in their mission effectively. And we see this in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. It says this, All these uh, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. This is the the disciples in the upper room, together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And then this is what happens next. Acts 2, uh, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. Uh, another symbol of, of God's power and presence resting. Where we see the dove symbolize the empowering presence resting over Jesus. In this moment, it's these divided tongues of fire uh, that are appearing and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them 
utterance, speaking the tongues of the nations that were gathered around them, so much so that Gentile nations and nations that were outside this Jewish community were hearing the scriptures in their own language. What does that mean? The kingdom of God, the good news of the gospel is for everyone. This defining moment in the book of Acts kicked off the disciples' empowered ministry when the Spirit came and rested on them. And the defining moment that kicked off Jesus' ministry was when the Spirit came and rested on him. Luke 3.22, one more time. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, if you remember last week, we we said that the primary term that God uses to describe the way that he relates to us is beloved. And this is what Gordon Fee says about this word beloved that I, I love so much. He says, the closest kind of intimate interior relationship exists between the Father and the Spirit. In our reception of the Spirit, we are on intimate terms with none other than God himself personally and powerfully present as the one who reveals God's ways to us. Our new birth in the spirit brings us into this relational life with God. Now hear me, this moment is not just about divine adoption. It is about divine empowerment. This moment in Jesus's life was not just about divine adoption. It was about divine empowerment. And what does it look like when God's spirit fills a person and empowers them? It looks like being endowed with the power to resist temptation the way Jesus resisted temptation when he navigated the wilderness where he was led by the spirit. It looks like the power to powerfully apply and recall scripture the way Jesus did when he opened up the scriptures and said, boom, right there. It looks like power to proclaim the good news boldly, power to heal the oppressed, power to display a life of freedom and invite others to experience the freedom that you're experiencing in Christ Jesus. In other words, the divinely adopted become the divinely empowered. Those who've been adopted by God and brought into his family become divinely empowered to bring others into the family of God. The hurting and the hopeless who become divinely adopted by God the Father become the divinely empowered by God the Spirit because the Spirit of God is at work in them and available to them to help, in, uh, to help usher in hope and healing to the hurting. The poor who are divinely adopted become divinely empowered to take on the world with power and with the resources of heaven that aren't dictated by their circumstances. The rich who are divinely adopted are divinely empowered to walk away from the love of money and walk in freedom as they show the world the generous heart of God through their generosity. The student who is divinely adopted by God the Father becomes divinely empowered by God the Spirit to walk into their classroom and proclaim with goodness how amazing and how awesome Jesus is and then see other students' lives changed. The business owner who is divinely adopted by God the Father becomes divinely empowered by God the Spirit to not just offer up a service through their job, but to serve others through their work that God may be glorified. The divinely adopted mother and fathers become divinely empowered to love and raise their children with a power, hear me, that isn't dictated by lack of sleep or well-behaved children. The divinely adopted become 
the divinely empowered. Church, what does all this mean for us? I refuse to be a church that settles for just being called children of God. When he's made available for us the power to live as children of God, to live the way Jesus modeled for us, divinely adopted and divinely empowered, to walk in all that Christ has made available for us and to live the way Jesus lived on earth as it is in heaven right now. Let us not just be called children of God. Let us look like children. Let us behave like children. Let us do what Jesus did with power, boldness, freedom, all for the glory of God the Father, the mission of God the Son, empowered by his spirit. So as we come to a close, I have two questions. Have you experienced this adoption? Have you experienced this power? Let's close in prayer as we reflect on this.